You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon to each and every one of you. And uh, good evening. I'm Barry Betcherdan. I'm the head of the Washington Post Correspondence in Mexico. And I'm delighted to see each and every one of you here. And I have the great pleasure to welcome to Marcelo Ebrard, the Foreign Affairs Minister. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with you. Good evening, everyone. And thank you for the invitation. Of course, we're starting with the topic of the climate. So, uh, Mr. Minister, during a visit to India, you said that it was a maximum priority to accelerate the energy transition in Mexico because everything is changing faster than what we thought of. And of course, this government came with a very strong commitment of strengthening the industry, the most traditional industry, the state industry, PMEX, the CFE, the power energy company. So this change is faster than what we thought of, Mr. Cancellor. We have a similar challenge. All the countries have to change a turbine of a plane and continue flying. You have to do both things at the same time. And what is new is that the goals that we have set forth Together with the United States and Canada in particular, we have to say that John Kerry has been a key factor, our more ambitious goals. And as a result, aside from what is convenient to do this energy transition, it's also a topic of survival of our industry and our capability uh, to export, because we cannot deface from the changes that are happening in the U.S. and Canada, of course. And we've also spoken about these ambitious goals, that you're going to require an investment of around 48 billion U.S. dollars. Where is this money coming from? Well, we're going to have public investment and private investment alike. That is what we have to do. There's no other way of doing this. However, this is a figure that is reachable, that is attainable. These are not figures that are out of our reach, and they're not out of the reach of our country. And right now, we're going to have to multiply, but the solar plant in Puerto Penisco that is being manufactured is going to start in this government and is going to be in the next three governments. Are working now on the financing model of these three plants, three new solar plants in the northern part of the country. And you've also said and spoken that there is a support on behalf of the United States. Up to what point have you reached uh, an agreement in these conversations? We are reaching very far. We're working together with the John Kerry team. And we are working with them for the expansion that I just mentioned. And we're going to have to add private investment because the private investment is going to play a key role in this expansion. And talking about the private investment, and uh, now there is a huge controversy right now in the framework of the uh, U.S., Canada, and Mexico trade agreement. As you know, these countries, the USMCA, uh, these countries say that Mexico favors the domestic industry, the state industries, that is not giving the same level and that could even reach a panel of a kind of a dispute resolution uh, with the first partners or amongst the first trade partners in Mexico. So how 
are you going to face or how Mexico is going to face this? I would say, first of all, the panels are good news in North America because before that we didn't even have panels. So right now having a panel works first of all, as something more fair to solve the differences, and secondly, it's very powerful, so we don't have to reach to a misagreement. So in the panel, if you don't reach agreement, the panel is there, the design of the panel is avoid, avoid it, not to have it, because you want to reach agreements before. That is why you have chats and you have series of previous sessions and meetings, and of course, in the case, for example, of the panel regarding energy, there are four topics that uh, are being inquired upon, I would say that the likelihood to reach an agreement is quite high before you reach a panel. Of course, that is my forecast because the incentives are very high. And on the other hand, the mere fact that Mexico increased its indices from 22 to 35 percent, the reduction is going to bring you to more than twofold your clean energies, your uh, generation of clean energy in Mexico. You're taking about 80 gigas at least, and that means that the size of your market, uh, to call it somehow, the, of clean energy grew twofold, and your need of a private investment grew twofold. So therefore, the original terms of the panel changed. And do you feel there is interest in this part of these private investors? The given the difficulties that have taken place with all the licenses, etc. Well, we have a very good investment in several fields related to energy. For example, liquefied gas, LP. Mexico is going to be one of the main exporters of LP in the next three years. Uh, if everything is on its way, and it's a liquefied gas, and all that is private investment. So let me tell you that I would say that as far as what I could anticipate, I see an increase in private investment in the next few years because of these decisions that are in synchrony with the, the decisions U.S. is taking regarding uh, the, so we don't reach more than 1.5 uh, degrees in the middle of the century. And talking about these commitments of not increasing the, uh, to reaching this 35%, so this, of course, means a commitment. This is also for the 2030. And how, well, of course, or before we can, yes, you cannot say I'm going to do it in 2060. You have to do it now. Yes, of course. And how can you ensure that these commitments continue? Because, of course, we have a new government. Uh, there's going to be a new government. Very close, uh, the, the cost of changing something like this would be huge. A government, I say that, they would say, no, now we're going to reduce 35%. No, very likely they will increase the percentage because the region, the region where we're at with our main trade partners that are, of course, United States and Canada and the European Union, the standards are very high. They are our strategic partners, so we could not have any margin to reduce the number. The other way around, we're going to increase it further later on. Okay. And as you said before, you're going to have to start immediately because these are huge ambitions. And aside from the solar plan of Sonora and also the plan for an eolic installation or wind energy installation in Oaxaca, what else is coming or what else can you see? Well, here we have to see the hydroelectric plants in Mexico. That Let me tell you that you have an important 
lag in the generation of clean energy that could increase. You have uh, wind energy investments uh, uh, that have been published in, in uh, by the CFE in Oaxaca, and this is going to happen in this administration. Between this year and next year, we already have these are federal property, so you don't have to negotiate the land because the land is given. It's federal land, so you have the capture of methane by Pemex and the new methane commitments that Mexico adopted that was, were proposed by John Kerry recently, a few months back. So I would say that the truth is that now we're in a stress of time in order to comply with what we have agreed to do. And uh, we are going to honor to do from now until the, uh, the, there's a change of president. So now, now we'll go into another topic. There are so many topics in the bilateral agreement. So, of course, right now it is so important, the topic of fentanyl is a huge priority in the United States. However, what we can see is that between the two countries, it's been very difficult to reach agreements up to the basic things, like, for example, if Mexico is an important producer of the synthesis of fentanyl. So how do you explain that there's these different perspectives in a topic that is so important? Well, I think that you have two parts like in other topics, one part is how are you going to reduce substantially the everything that is the different types of derivatives. And I was telling you that right now there is chlorhydrate salts with methamphetamines, etc., etc. They're new. So even the speed of changes of these products is just um, surprising. So the question is how are we going to reduce the arrival of chemical precursors to Mexico and the United States? Mexico has more controlled substances than the United States. And one of the first things that we agreed in the meeting is let's have the same list. And the UN has 33, we have 82, and Canada has like 38, and you, US has, I don't know how many, but there's a first point where we don't even have the same list of precursors of what do we want to control. The second one is the three countries are reviewing less than 5% of the load. You cannot review more because of this mere fact that there's thousands and thousands of containers going through our borders. So now we're going to improve the system to concentrate in the precursors of the list that I just mentioned. So the race is, the idea is to substantially reduce the precursors from Asia to America and uh, in America amongst the countries. So this is what we agreed upon. So we have a public management of the topic. Who's to blame? I can tell you that fentanyl is a pandemic because it's sold in every corner. So there was a famous case, I don't know if you recall, with Perdi Pharma and all of that. However, what do we win by blaming others and staying there? You can produce, for example, a DA agent said 80% is produced in Mexico. Can you prove it? And I don't think it's true. Even if it is, so let's not say these things. This is a strategic error. Let's we're going to get divided. We want to join forces. So if we persevere, if we show the progress we have, and we win mutual trust, we're going to have good results. That is a, a path I am going to work on, and that's why we have an understanding. Of course, this architect. So, and. Uh, then at this point, uh, we are in a very unusual point. There's politicians in the United States that 
are even suggesting and appealing to the use of the military force of the United States to attack these labs or to and other things. Do you worry that in the Republican Party there's a growing number of politicians that are talking about this idea? We are busy, and we would never allow something like that to happen. I told somebody the other day over my dead body, but don't think this is a declaration that is simple. But uh, these type of things, I don't think that nobody in this room would allow that to happen. And secondly, I don't think it's viable either, because this is a topic to say Mexico is to blame, and therefore we're going to have to send our forces from the U.S. to Mexico. But out of the conference... They could have asked the senator, how are you selling fentanyl in the corner or via internet? For example, another agreement we reached in this meeting is working with Facebook and Google and TikTok, uh, etc. And now, uh, Elon Musk, I haven't spoken about it, but I'll see it next time about Twitter. But in particular, all social networks, all social media, uh, the sale of fentanyl and derivatives, they, let's deal with what we are implementing with uh, terrorism. So, uh, so if we come with an ISIS message, we relocate it, we isolate it, and we remove it from the network. So why don't we do it with somebody that is selling fentanyl? And that is another of the agreements that are feasible to implement. And we're going to have a social debate uh, where you're going to promote ethics and responsibility. And then we're going to avoid uh, to, uh, to not to put aside the joint efforts that we're doing, because then what would be the message? The, uh, the countries are going to be in elections, so what is the message we want to convey to our people? In, uh, what is the reaction in Mexico? But I do not know if the, what is the reaction in Mexico if a, a military act from the U.S. against these labs, what would happen? I don't think that can be done. It's not feasible because if you would destroy in one act all the cooperation between Mexico and the United States in security reasons. And I don't think this is reasonable for no type of government. I see it as a campaign resource, but as an option of real policy, I don't see it. And this would have huge implications. And in Mexico, is the main trade partner of the United States and vice versa. Can you imagine measure this type, what it would bring as a consequence? And on the other hand, you have a community of 38 million of people in the United States that are Mexican in origin. So it is not, it is not very simple to make a decision of that nature. I don't think it's impossible, but I see it very unlikely. There's another discussion about the possibility of a legislation that has been proposed on calling the drug trafficking groups as terrorist groups, as foreign terrorist groups, and that would be connected to the same. But even though legally you wouldn't have the same repercussions, and I see it very unlikely because it hasn't been the first time it's been proposed. It's been proposed and they've been doing this for a long time. And the other thing is that what are you going to do with fentanyl in the United States? What are you going to do with the distribution of fentanyl in the United States? And that would be the first question we would have to ask ourselves. 
Yes. But then would it have an impact? This assignment would have an impact if that legislation were to be approved. It would have a negative uh, impact in the bilateral relationship, but uh, we would not have a military intervention. That I don't think it could happen because that would be a fracture between Mexico and the United States. There would be a huge fracture. Why? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that they send you military forces? No, no. If this legislation were to be approved because it's an announcement and that direction is going to have a negative impact, I believe. That would be my forecast, and that is going to give you better results. No. That's the worst thing. You have a high cost, and it's not going to give you good results. You're going to have very poor results if that were to be approved, because the following day you're going to have continue having fentanyl in the street, or at least a derivative of it. So do you feel there's going to be a resolution about that debate now, that if you produce or not fentanyl in Mexico, or it's uh, produced fentanyl, it depends. There's a big confusion about what type of fentanyl. There's a great confusion about the topic. There's many substances that are circulating that are called fentanyl, and there's different types of processes. Some are very complicated and complex, and I would say that the fentanyl precursors, as far as we know, are not produced in Mexico. Most of them, as far as our knowledge reaches. So this is a topic of controlling the trade that comes to Mexico. That is why I started with the containers, at least so far. Okay, yes. And in a different topic, migration. In Is there a concern on behalf of the U.S. government that now they're going to raise the title of 42, that there could be a wave of migrants? So that is a measure that will allow the United States to uh, kick out people that are asking uh, asylum for health reasons. So how is Mexico being prepared for this moment? And what we see that has worked in the time that I've been uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where we have to see these topics as well as the economy and others, and why the relationships with the United States. So what I've seen also is the relationship, the strategy with Biden regarding Venezuelans, Cubans, Nicaraguan people, and Bolivian people, that is opening a procedure, a regular procedure, where you can ask for a request and they tell you what you have to do, whether the requirement, and they answer to you if you can come. So they've come to the U.S., for example, more than 34,000 people through the system. And that has caused the incentive to put yourself in hands uh, of in the black market that tell you that you're going to get there with great uncertainty kind of breaks apart. Plunges. That is the only measure that has had such a huge impact in such little time. This was a notable drop. And so I don't know if the Biden um, administration is going to take this experience for what's coming next in the month of May. And Mexico still is going to have, let's say, we have a permanent table. We're also talking with Guatemala and Honduras and Salvador. And, of course, we're going to try, amongst all of us, to have the most intelligent possible reason. But we're starting with this basis, uh, plus investment in Central America. Mexico is investing in Central 
Central America. We presented the report. It's very interesting. And the investment in the zones where we have greater flows towards Mexico has had a meaningful impact with regards to the flow, the migration flow towards our country. We already presented that. Thank you, thank you. I'm sorry, but... We're about to finish. I'm eating. Mauricio's time. He's going to get angry. This is a mandated question. If you are the next president of Mexico, so how would you change foreign policies towards the United States? Well, towards the United States, I would try to consolidate a very important scaffolding that we've been building that goes from the panels all the way to having a security problem with an annual action plan amongst both countries and expanded to many other fields, for example, uh, trying to do synchrony in the investment, economic and infrastructure um, investment decisions. Something else I'd like to fix is that there's more or less 380,000 students that are brilliant from several countries in Asia, China, today in the best universities in the United States and in Mexico, we have 15,000. So there's a huge field, a huge field of action there and connection and liaison of our educational uh, institutions, health, research with the best institutions in the United States. That is what I think that we could achieve. Fantastic. So, Mr. Um, Councillor, uh, thank you for being with us, and we are running out of time. And also, thank you to all of you for being here, and my peer, Kevin Seif, is going to be a few minutes to interview the governor of Yucatan. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I am Kevin Seif, responsible of the Washington Post, and I am very pleased to be with the governor of Yucatan, Mauricio Villa. Thank you so much for being with us this evening to the country. I'm very pleased to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. And, uh, Governor, in your state is possibly the state that can we can have the greater risk because of climate change. You've spoken a lot about this risk and how to reduce it and minimize it. Can you tell us how do you see the problem and what are the possible solutions? Well, let me tell you that definitely in Yucatan, climate change has turned into a reality. Just to mention to you the year 2020, whereas we were in the full COVID pandemic, we had informants three tropical storms, two hurricanes. It was the year of that more rain uh, has been recorded in uh, Yucatan, and this turns into a reality. Another very important topic is that if we're not able to ensure the goals that we have set forth on the climate crisis, for sure, important extensions of Yucatan and the Yucatan Peninsula will disappear in the next 100 years. Today, the commitment we have is from the Yucatan government is to put whatever we can and make sure that the projects generate the environmental benefit and also an awareness in the population. Because everyone at home, at work, in our schools, we all have the opportunity of uh, fighting against climate change. And if we can achieve it, only if we work together. 
Governor, in your state, the government, the federal government, is building uh, more than 200 uh, kilometers of the Mayan train, one of the most important projects of the current president. Some experts say that the Mayan train is going to destroy important parts of the Yucatecan uh, uh, forest. And uh, so what are you doing to minimize the environmental impact? The project of the Mayan train, uh, we have supported uh, since this administration, but it is going to hurt the jungle. Having a fast and efficient uh, transportation means that will bring millions and millions of tourists that come to the Mayan Riviera is a project that is going to generate economic benefits, jobs, and more. For us, looking at the environment is a priority, and the Mayan train, as you know, is going through five states. My responsibility is to see what happens in Yucatan. You win Yucatan, the trace of the Mayan train is a, something that makes a lot of sense, and it has a minimum environmental impact because from Campeche to Merida, the Mayan train is on the tr existing train tracks. We're removing the old train tracks, and we're putting the new tracks. And from Merida towards Cancun, we're building on two... Um, on the highway, and this it was an area that had been already impacted, so the environment impact in Yucatan is minimum, and the benefit, of course, that we'll have with this important project that is also important to point out, and that happens many times, and is not seen as a project that is not only a touristic train, it's also a freight train that is going to connect the transseismic train with the project of the Mayan train, and I want to give an example. A company that's installed in Yucatan that brings raw materials from Asia is going to bring in their ships raw material down loaded in Salina Cruz and take it up to Mexico, to Merida, they transform there this product and they can take it out through the Progreso port and what we see with this infrastructure being created is having the great opportunity that Yucatan will become in a new border in Mexico, the border with the eastern coast of the United States and the majority of exports that we have in the country go to the western coast and the southeast has this important opportunity, the southeast part is uh, uh, drawing back versus the north and the uh, center of the country, they are the ones that provide to the eastern part of the United States, and this is a great opportunity. We're in a moment in Mexico where the opposition doesn't have a very well-defined um, position, so you could be a possible candidate for the presidential office. Why isn't there a better opposition or better defined opposition? Let me tell you, I've always said that the governor of a state is not an opposition of the president. There's many people that believe and start getting despaired and say, what about the Yucatan governor? Why is he opposing the, the president? I'm not in the position. If the opposition is a federal uh, in representatives and uh, has members, well, I, as a governor, have to give results to, uh, to my people, to the people of Yucatan. This country has enough problems to, to put uh, stop uh, or shoot ourselves in the food. If you want results, it's better to work as a team. And therefore, in Yucatan, we have a very good working relationship with the federal government, with the president, but at the same excellent relationship with 106 uh, town halls from all the political parties. And how, as a governor and as a Mexican, what is your opinion about the current president? What is the good and the bad? Let me tell you that these opinions should le be left to the people, but let me to the citizens. I am very thankful with the president because he's listened to the needs and what we've mentioned from Yucatan 
Yucatan, what we need in Yucatan. We have in northern part of the country, the average income in the north is higher than the ones in the south-southeast of the country, and that has to do because in the south-southeast we don't have infrastructure. And let me give an example. Today in Yucatan, we're building two thermoelectrical centrals. We are expanding uh, the Port of Progreso. We talked about the Mayan train, and uh, the natural gas is a trigger of investment and a best, better paid jobs. Also in Nuevo León, natural gas arrived in 1940, and we are in 1923, waiting for 2023 to have enough natural gas. So I have to acknowledge in the president that there's been this wish to bring the infrastructure that is required in the southeastern part of the country to balance. Uh, but I don't agree with everything that the president does, of course, but when there's differences, we talk about them in short, because I'm fully convinced that having a good relationship and go good coordination respecting what the law provides is more advantageous for my state than having a confrontation project that maybe could be very popular in the opposition, but no question would leave my state in a disadvantaged situation. I have a question about Pemex. The company generates lots of revenues for the Mexican government, but we've seen many incidents of pollution, leaks, and other environmental problems. In the Mexican Gulf, next to Yucatan, we saw a fire, a huge fire of a Pemex platform. In your opinion, what type of reforms Pemex needs in order to extract oil, avoiding this type of incidents? The topic of hydrocarbons and Pemex are federal competition topics. These fires that you mentioned, they were more on the side of Campeche and Yucatan. We haven't had so much of an impact. And I feel Pemex is one of the most important companies that we have in Mexico. And this is a company that requires to become more modern. But we also have to give them the tools to be able to be more modern. There has to be technology. There has to be better training. And of course, there has also to be a public investment that is productive. So this company will make it. And this is a company that's an example at a national level of looking after the environment. And you organized a meeting this year with representatives of different countries about the environment and the climate change. The meeting touched upon the role of the private sector. Can you tell us how could you how could the public and private sectors collaborate in under this context? Of course, my job is to be the president of what is called the GCF, the Governors for Climate and Forest, and we're a group of governors that are mainly from zones that are highly forest zones. For example, in the southeastern part of the country, uh, we have the second largest lung in America be, uh, behind Amazonas the Amazon. We did an event in Merida to exchange strategies to get to know better practices and where the work of private initiative is core. Today in Yucatan, we're developing many projects with a private initiative. And let me give you one. This is a project that is called Text for Nature, where Huawei is giving us the technology in order to have cameras to be able to have audio maps and monitoring real time of the fauna of our natural reserves. What this allows us is that with our universities, for example, the Technical University were able to predict 
through algorithms the behavior of animals to look at them and care for them better. This type of initiatives that we have with many other companies allow us to have the technological tools and the knowledge that many times the local governments don't have. So for me, it is core, the participation of private initiatives, not only in this topic, but in decisions made at a state level. Your state has a very important relationship with the United States, but we're seeing that the United States is going through a very agitated political situation. A, um, a president that is being accused by a crime, and a, how can you maintain a stable relationship with a country that is so unstable, unstable? As they say, it happens in the best of the families, you know? So that's what his people say. We have a um, consulate from the U.S. We have a very good relationship. The Chancellor, Marcelo Brad, we've had meetings where he's been present with the Ambassador of the United States in Mexico, Ken Salazar, that we thank very much. He's taking into account this is the eastern part of the country. Tuesday, in Gutierrez and Chiapas, we had our seventh summit, and what we're doing is working together in two core topics. Number one, how can we attract more jobs to the southeastern part of the country? We think the American Chamber of Commerce because we've been working with them because today in Yucatan you have companies, many North American companies that are already operating and others are going to be coming. And the topic is the work in favor of looking after the environment. We're looking for the preservation of the Mayan jungle. One of the most important ones is through USA aid, where there's $90 million fund where the state of the southern part of the country are presenting projects that are specific so that people in the communities can Use, uh, use their natural resources in a sustainable manner and can keep them today. What is happening in many places in the world is that people say, I have all of these natural resources that I can take advantage of. They don't let me use it, but they don't give me options for me to be able to work at and to be able to uh, succeed. These projects are focused on that. For example, in Yucatan, we're working a lot in the topic of apiculture. By an apiculture, we're also working with local impact projects in Yucatan and also regional impact between Yucatan, Campeche, and Quintana Roo. You've also mentioned that Yucatan has enormous potential to develop projects of clean energies. How do you help, how does the federal government allow or impede these projects? We all know how this topic has happened of the renewable energies. Yucatan is a state that has it all to be able to be a state that is very important in this topic. As far uh, in my administration, in the last two years, we were able to open up three parks of a, a, a wind uh, energy and two photovoltaic. Today in Yucatan, we're producing 25% of the energy we consume as clean energy from uh, wind parks in Yucatan. We sell energy to many companies like Mars that is here with us. And we have other 21 projects in our portfolio that are now at a stand still. Why? Because of legal matters. They're litigating one-on-one -on -one when the electric reform is not approved. So each of the programs is litigating one-on-one, -on -one, and for sure at some point we're going to create a jurisprudence that will allow all of these projects to progress. It is also important to underscore that these 21 projects are able to concrete. Yucatan would be the only state in the Mexican Republic and one of the few ones in the world that would be producing more clean energy from the energy that it consumes. This is a great opportunity we have in Yucatan, and there is a, a drawback, but the coordinated work, and for sure these projects, are going to be able to walk in the short run. 
We're about to finish. We have one more question. You cannot receive millions of tourists from all over the world. This phenomenon has its benefits, but it also implies an impact in natural resources. What is the message that you want to give to the tourists, the American tourists that are listening to us in live stream? The gringo tourists tell you you're welcome. You're more than welcome. Yucatan is a beautiful place. It has a lot to offer to you, and it's important to mention that as Cancun and the Mayan Riviera, you have a North American tourist that is young, a spring breaker that wants to party and have a good time in Yucatan. We have a tourism that of an older age, a tourist that wants to look for the Mayan culture, the Zenotes, the Haciendas. So we have started a campaign to be able to have a sustainable tourism. We want to have tourism to respect our environment because we're aware of the important richness and heritage that we have. We're living a great momentum in Yucatan. And I mentioned a second ago on the table because in 2021 is a year with greater economic growth in the history of Yucatan, the year that we had the greatest generation of jobs in our history in Yucatan. 2022, the year with greater foreign investment in the history of Yucatan. 2022, the year that more tourists we've received in the history of Yucatan. And if that's not enough, the safest year in our history. Yucatan in 2021 was the safest state in the country, and in 2022 we continue being so, but a reduction of crime of 55%. So this causes Yucatan to be a very appealing place, not only to invest, but also to visit. And what do we ask for tourists to come and enjoy Yucatan and enjoy and learn about our customs and our traditions and respect our life quality and our environment? Thank you so much for being, being with us, uh, Governor, and thank you for your answers, Governor of Yucatan, Mauricio Vila. Thank you to all of you for being with us also. To the country, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.